0: I was sitting with my friend Lloyd one day, and I said to him, Hey, Lloyd, what do you think about... And I mentioned a popular TV preacher. And Lloyd kind of sat back in his chair and sighed deeply and closed his eyes, and I thought, I'm going to get a really heartfelt response here. And he just simply said, Bill, I believe if you gave him three enemas, you could bury him in a shoebox. Now, as I doubled over in laughter, I realized I didn't share the same sentiment that Lloyd did, but I'd opened myself up to his perspective and now I was going to get it. It's the idea when you ask somebody for their opinion, they typically share it. Most of the time, that opinion probably won't exactly be your opinion, but as they share it, you become aware that, wait, we have differences in perspective. If those differences in perspective can divide you, then you won't be friends. Because I think a lot of times we just find ourselves being friends with people who think just like us, which makes life pretty boring. Lloyd went on to say, I think if you buy him for what he's worth and sell him for what he thinks he's worth, you can become a very wealthy man. Well, Lloyd had a way with words, as is common with people down in Texas. And I appreciated his perspective just for sheer entertainment factor. But I also could see what he saw. And I realized that he was answering the question that Jesus posted to his disciples one day. Jesus said, who do men say that I am? And who do you say that I am? He was asking people, what do you think about me? What do you think other people think about me? Jesus wasn't doing this to define his own identity. He was basically doing this to reveal the gift that he's given to us and the fact that we have something called a perspective, You and I get to choose our perspective. Sometimes our perspective is shaped by the circumstances in our life. And that perspective ultimately is a belief. And the belief determines what the experience is that you have in this life. And today we're going to talk about this question that Jesus asked the disciples. Who do you say that I am? Welcome to the Reckless Grace Podcast. My name is Bill Vanderbush.
1: Did you know that when you got married, you didn't just marry one person? When you said, I do, you married four very different people. Now we're not talking about polygamy, we're not talking about marrying a whole bunch of people at once, unless we are. Let's talk about it. When you got married, you said yes to one, the person you think they are, two, the person they think they are, three, the person they are at this very moment, and four, the person that they are becoming. Problems arise when we fall in love with one or two of the four. And when the rest show up, and they will, you can feel as though you were fooled into something you didn't sign up for. This is the path that for many people end in divorce. The four people you marry will give you priceless tools to learning the art of growing stronger together through inevitable changes of life. And you know what? It's possible to fall in love with the same person all over again. Bill and Tracy found this to be true, and they share parts of their personal journey with humor and insightful storytelling that will strengthen your love and bring healing into your marriage. The Four People You Marry is available on Amazon.com or through Bill's website, BillVanderbush.com.
0: I have a dear friend named Matt, Matt Monk.
1: He's got a great
0: podcast out there. You should check it out. Matt recorded a conversation with me earlier this week and it captures everything I wanted to say in this week's podcast and so I thought, why reinvent the wheel? So this is the conversation that Matt and I had. It's very candid, it's raw, we cover a lot of ground in it. We deal with the question, who do you say that I am? We talk about the finished work of the cross and then we even talk about cows giving birth to lambs. Yeah, stick around, it'll be a fun podcast. Let's jump into this conversation between me and and a good friend of mine, Matt Monk.
2: So, um, what do you what do you got going on now, man? Um, I know. Well, I'll lead I'll lead it off with of this. I was listening to the Reckless Grace podcast. So, oh,
0: good! I'm glad yeah. you got a chance to listen to that.
2: Yeah, you. So you've got that going on, and you're still doing Faith Mountain Ministries.
0: Yeah, Faith Mountain's kind of a Bible so, study podcast. Bible. So. Okay. You know, but the Bible study podcast, I I mean, I love it. I I love doing that stuff. But, you know, if I've got a series of meetings going on in churches or whatever, like as a pastor, if I said, hey, I'm going to be doing a topical study on how to cast out demons or something like that, man, people mm-hmm. will come out to that all day long. But if I say we're going to get into the scriptures and, and learn how to study the Bible, you'll get a fraction of the crowd. And to me, yeah. that's the most important thing right now. I was having a conversation with a friend yesterday about this. It's like the amount of biblical illiteracy I run into – in churches is remarkable, and it's not that people don't have a value for the things of God; or they just don't have a grounding or a rooting in the Scriptures. And so, I see a lot of people, like in a sense, tearing down the the entire idea of the authority of Scripture. And when they do that, it's almost like you remove the one foundational, tangible thing that we can all anchor into on some level. Yeah. And um, yeah, so I just I feel like these days. You know, I really want to keep that Bible study element. So I made that separate from the Reckless Grace podcast, which is just storytelling. Although the last okay. one is a is a pretty solid Bible study.
2: Yeah, um, that's good. So I think I listened to the first episode a couple of days ago, and mm-hmm. it kind of relates to the first question I'm going to ask you about, but... getting into that would you say from like the bible study aspect some of the stuff that you're seeing would you say like people just don't know how to study or how to approach reading their bibles get dig into that a little bit because it's interesting because it's something like i grew up like hardcore church of christ like you read your bible you read it every day i think i was maybe like nine or ten years old and i'd read the whole thing cover to cover already and i had like whole chapters memorized because they just made us do it, made us do it, made us do it. So I guess I'm curious kind of from your experience, like what you see in terms of like biblical illiteracy and like, how do we approach that?
0: Yeah. Well, you know, here's the thing to me with the Bible is if the Bible was easily understood as a cut and dried document that we could all look at, see exactly the same way and agree upon, then we wouldn't have the divisions we've had for the last 2000 years. And I had the same thing growing up. I mean, I, the Bible was kind of a part of our DNA in our household. My dad yes. played it, Alexander Scurby, reading the Bible on cassette pretty much constantly, you know, everywhere we went. And it's just, he just had this value for the scriptures. So I grew up learning less of the technicalities of chapter and verse and more the narrative, the story, yeah, the context of things. And I came to realize the Bible is one huge question from God to man. And that is the question that Jesus asked the disciples. And that is, who do you say that I am? Because that's typically what we're doing with the Bible. One of the things we do, I think when we approach the Bible is how do we live? And then the other one is who is God? We still disagree on who God is. And I think the reason for that is because God has in the scriptures given us such a wide menu of options to choose from in terms of how do we see his character? You know, Is he filled with judgment and wrath or is God love a consuming fire of passionate love that keeps no record of wrongs I means like you can prove both of those things from the scriptures and is it either or is it both and and then to settle on one over the other. If I settle on God is, you know, he's all grace. And the love of God completely eradicates all transgression from my account, Second Corinthians 5. God was yeah. in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting our transgressions against us. If I say, okay, that's who God is. Then if I got somebody over here that says, no, God is Hebrews 12, God, the judge of all. You know, I look at that and I go, okay, God is judge of all. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I look at John 5, the father judges no one. Okay, what do I do with those things? Are they contradictions? No, they're tensions. And when I look at the tensions in scripture, I've got to ask myself, okay, now it's now in in my lab to come to some sort of determination as to who I see him to be. And not that I'm making him anything. It's not that I create him in my image. And certainly it's not that I define him, but I do get the choice to define my perspective of him. And that determines the relationship that I have with him. So as I saw God as I would say my younger days when I saw God as judge, because all I could see was my own sin, yeah. sinfulness. And I thought, oh man, God is the judge. He's the corrector. He's the punisher or whatever you want to say. Or, you know, Wrath-filled punisher that has come down to, you know, take and turn my life right. Then my relationship with God was much more reverent. Yeah. Uh, so I understand the people who carry tremendous awe and reverence for God. But as my relationship with God has come to, I would say evolve to a perspective of, that his righteousness is more powerful than my sinfulness, that his grace can overpower my ability to be lost, then I suddenly realize that reverence takes on an air of intimacy. And I think that's where it's, it's come from, you know, God is king and judge to Abba Father. You know, the sonship yeah. and aspect of it becomes a little bit more real to me. Having gone through that spectrum of perspective, though, It keeps me from judging people on the other side of things. So the Bible, though, is the thing that actually informs that perspective. It gives me truths and truer truths and even truer truths. And to me, the highest form of truth of the revelation of God, Paul wrote about, love trumps everything. And So to see God as as love, first and foremost, once I see that, I can't unsee it. Mm -hmm. And, And yet I can't force people around me to see it. But I know this, I, th- I know that they're not going to find it just simply by their own experience or standing on their own head or understanding as a pedestal of um, something to lean on in terms of belief about who he is. To build the relationship, it has to be birthed in the counsel of the scripture. There's something about that, that wisdom and counsel that actually unveils him. It doesn't confine him, but it does unveil him. So scripture gives us a launching pad to have a, a relationship with God. But I know if somebody comes to me and says, I think God's like this or I think God's like that. If I don't have a rooting and a grounding in the Bible to anchor into, then I'm tossed about. You know, I don't know what to believe. Somebody else with greater knowledge comes in and, you know, and and I and I've got no I got no, no ground to stand on. So the Bible becomes that point of anchoring for me to answer the question that God asks, who do you say that I am? And what I've figured out also is as I come to an understanding of his nature and his character, it also begins to define me a little bit more because yeah. I realize I'm made in his image and likeness. So if I see God as judgmental, and if I see God as condescending, then I end up reflecting the reality that I uh, perceive in terms of what I'm focusing, the aspect of his nature that I'm mm-hmm. focusing on. But yeah. when, when I've come to see myself as son and see him as father and, and realize there's no distance and separation between God and me because of what Christ did. Wow how that aspect of his nature is love overwhelms me and overcomes my judgment so that i'm i I have no room in my life for judgment and offense and all that all that junk that just seems to create so much division in the world so i I think that come to that place of long answer to a short question but coming to that place of just knowing um knowing what the scriptures are are asking of us that the scriptures are just really asking Who do you say that I am? God, you know, Jesus, you know, he didn't, he, people asked him like hundreds of questions. He clearly answered maybe like two. (laughs) So (laughs) he's not Uh, super, he doesn't seem super interested in giving uh, us a book that just is like, here's all the answers and here's all the clarity. I'm just thinking like Martin Luther, he didn't know uh that he was reforming the church. He just thought, let's just give everybody the Bible And that way we can all kind of agree and come to unity. And like Mm -hmm. exactly the opposite happened. Yeah.
2: But yeah, it's funny. Like, it's just, you read Jesus, you read the gospels and like, I'm using a percentage just to, you know, get my point across. I don't know what the actual percentage is, all you fact checkers out there. But 99% of the time Jesus is using, um, they ask him a question and he tells a story they ask him a question <laughs> and he tells a story once upon so, a time
0: a certain man had two sons
2: yeah yeah so it's like he, he's he's behaving like an octogenarian but he's 30 years old you know so um which is my which is my goal in life uh students in my classes will probably probably tell you that like what was the well, this dude that's ever that's but, um, a huge
0: that's a huge point because what i think it's mark's gospel that says that jesus taught in parables and without a parable he did not teach yeah you know, it's like it's like he never taught without telling a story. That's so why I like to say the future belongs to the storytellers. You know, yeah, for sure. About the ability, to, you know, to the the, the um, friend of mine used to say that the shortest distance between the head and the heart is a story. So yeah. somehow getting out of our out of our uh, our own intellectual perception of understanding and getting down into the place where it catches and captures the core of your being. It's it's all in story. Everything, in the, to me, everything in the Bible is a story. Revelation yeah. is a story. You know, it's 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 a play, actually. Mm-hmm. Revelation is just a play put on by heaven for John, which yeah. is why, you know, about four or five times in, in the story of Revelation, they have to yell, cut, and then somebody has to explain to John what's going on because he's having like a really inappropriate emotional reaction to it. And <laughs> you know, we look at that and go, oh... How, how big is that beast? I am like, no, no, it's a spirit. It's a story. It's a, it, yeah. So.
2: Yeah, that's awesome, man. Um. Well, and I've been like digging, digging deep, getting really into like what the ancient Hebrew culture was like, you know, mm-hmm. it's like been one of the things I've been nerding out about the last six months or so, but in story, like they were a culture so not only is story important and they're telling stories but they're like a culture that prided themselves on telling stories yeah so it's yeah. like this i don't know just blows me away like the more the more i sit with it and i'm like jesus is telling these stories that are loaded that we still sit with today and they still breathe and are, are active but then he understood his culture so well right that he was like a storyteller among storytellers in a culture that told stories. And I don't know. I just trying to wrap my head around that is just so but then you apply it to the day like, what are we really obsessed with? Like what are what do we do in our free time? Right. We're watching Netflix or whatever. Well, we're <laughs> we're looking for some type of story. Even even like news media, we're um in whatever side of the line you follow in a time yeah. where there's a lot of division and stuff, but what are you really doing? You're looking for a story and you're looking for a place where you see yourself in that story. And yeah. I think people are looking for their place in a story, but then it's like, Oh, I see myself over here in this story. You're separate from my story. But the reality is like, bro, we're all in the same story right now together.
0: Yeah. Um, well, you know, And in, in, maybe this is something I never really articulated, but, you know, in Deuteronomy, when it says when you, you know, as you stand, as you lie down and walk along the way, um, you know, you open your mouth and you speak, you teach, you you repeat, rehearse the works of God. It's it's to never lose sight of the wonders yeah. of God. That's really, the, I mean, the, the whole the whole foundation of the story. I think in Acts chapter 2, one of the things that, that happens when the Holy Spirit is poured out, it says they were speaking in unknown tongues each one of them heard them all speak the wonderful works of God. It's almost like the Holy Spirit coming upon the church in Acts chapter two rekindled the wonder of, yeah, of, yeah. The, of, the, of the wonders of God. And they just start, what are they doing in time? They're, they're, they're speaking out the wonderful works of God. They're going back to like the, it's almost like the Holy Spirit's like bursting out within them, generations of stories of the wonder of God that, that maybe hadn't been told in a long time. I mean, who knows? Um, you know, I, I did something Matt during uh, COVID shutdown and all that, <laughs> that I'd never done before. And that is, I decided to read the works of Flavius Josephus, you know, which is, you know, about yay thick and single spaced yeah. and super small font. It's Double really
2: columns. Yeah. Oh
0: my goodness. Hard to read. And, um, and if you ever read the the section that talks about the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, and Josephus, who's of course has to answer to to the emperor, he's gonna you know he's going to uh, he's gonna die. I mean, he's like you know, somewhat well known for his reporting, kind of Walter Cronkite of his day, right? Yeah. So he's he's uh, and and he records like the last the last months of Jerusalem before the siege. When Jerusalem is surrounded by armies, and he and he starts talking about how. Um, there's a, a flaming comet in the shape of a sword hanging in in the air in the sky, stationary in the sky over Jerusalem for the space of a year. Wow. Which a sword looks like a cross, you know. So essentially, mm-hmm. God puts a flaming cross in the sky, just hangs there. But he calls it a comet in the shape of a sword. And then how the Roman soldiers saw chariots literally riding on the clouds, encircling Jerusalem. But the people don't seem to care or notice, even though they noticed it. They didn't. They didn't care, and then here's the part that got me. I I, I never learned this in seminary, Bible college, or anything. There had never read this before, and I don't know why I'd never heard this before because it is the craziest thing I think I've ever heard in terms of you know extra biblical information. Um, he says, as the priests were leading the heifer into the temple for the it's like the final sacrifice for the people, right? Yeah. He says, and behold, the heifer gave birth to a lamb. Wow. You have freaked me out. What? I was like, When well, I had to go back and look what? at that and like underline it. Now I'm getting the internet out and Googling. I'm like, what, where did this come from? Yeah. So when this happens, then it says the Eastern gate of the temple opened on its own. It took 20 men to open and close this thing. Suddenly the thing just throws open on its own. There's all kinds of other crazy. they're like seven or eight supernatural, crazy things going on. But here's what Josephus records. He kind of steps out of his, you know, usual, just objective uh, reporting, and he makes an observation that's sort of uncharacteristic for him, but what he was seeing must have shocked him so much. It wasn't the wonders that he was seeing that was shocking him. It was the priest's response, the religious people's response. And he says, in all of these things, as all of these things were happening, the priest simply went about their ministerial duties as if it wasn't even going on. Wow. And to me, that's that is the danger of losing the wonder of the works of God that have been passed down to us. The, the wonder of story. You know, it can never be something where life becomes such a a routine that God could show up and birth a lamb out of a heifer. And we just like, yeah, whatever. You know, it's like, I mean, how do you get to that place? You lose the wonder of. Of story. Um, I was reading in, in uh, Gideon's story in Judges 6 the other day, when the angel of the Lord comes to Gideon and says, the Lord's with you, mighty man of valor. And Gideon's response is so typical of humanity. Gideon goes, yeah, where are the miracles? And why are all these bad things happening? <laughs> with those two things, I'm like, yeah. that's exactly what people say today. It's like when you try to, you know, share about the Lord, they're like, yeah, so what where are the miracles? How come all this bad stuff's going on? I'm like yeah. Gideon asked the same question thousands of years ago. So yeah, we wow. we just we haven't come a long ways, but I think we devolve as people when we lose the wonder of story. Yeah, for sure. That was fun to articulate. Yeah. Thanks for giving me the chance Def- to do that. I never actually said that definitely. Before. I just took like
2: a page of notes over that um read, so
0: read that thing about josephus and the heifer man yeah that, for, i got
2: i gotta look that up yeah i've been reading um eusebius mm-hmm. history of the christian church oh, man. um going through mm-hmm. that and that blows me but now it's just like since i'm on this i get on kicks you know i'll get mm-hmm. like into a historical period and i'll just go and then i'll get into a certain like genre of fiction and i'll just go right now it's just like i'm into like a lot of myth uh-huh. And like um church history and kind of right. the the interplay between uh the mythologies that were developing and like the Greek and the Roman culture and like all of that and how it intertwines and vice versa with the history of the Christian church. But I love
0: that yeah. I just was I love Eusebius's I history love, of the church yeah. and I just was reading like this massive series on the on the on the fall of the the Roman Empire and I saw something in it. That I'd never seen before, where it was a common, um, a common phrase in the Roman Empire uh, from the time of Christ, you know, to the destruction in Jerusalem in eighty seventy was was this phrase known as the sting of death, which I never knew. Of course, yeah, the the sting of death was the punishment that you could expect after death. It wasn't death itself. It wasn't like that. The loss that comes from a death, as we think of it, you know, we think mm-hmm. of the sting of death as some. Somebody dies and it hurts. Yeah. That's the sting of death for us. For the Romans who coined the phrase, the sting of death was the the idea that after death you got the hammer coming at you, you know. Mm-hmm. And so when you know, when Paul says, Oh, death, where's your sting? The sting of death has been dealt with in Christ. Yeah. Uh, and I you know, so if we don't understand that history, like we're not gonna get that out of the Bible. You know, we see these phrases and we apply them into an English you know, English language, and we, you know, superimpose them over a Western world, but when you start reading the cultures of of the Jews and the cultures of the Romans and and the things that were a big deal in Jesus' day, suddenly these terms that come out start to go, whoa. I heard one the other day that I'd never, never heard before from a Greek lady. She says to me, she goes, uh, she says, you ever studied the the term Antichrist? She said, what do you think anti means? I said, well, it means what? Opposed to, right? And she goes okay. no it doesn't she goes it, i thought well anti seems pretty obvious opposed to and she goes but not she goes that's the that's the english you know translation of the word and it's accurate she goes but it doesn't mean opposed to in that mm-hmm. sense she says it just means instead of and she's wow. like it's not like the antichrist spirit is violently opposed to the things of god in christ antichrist spirit might say you know yeah i believe in christ but i'm going to focus on something else for just a second so i'm just going to set him aside in other words anything that is instead of christ is the antichrist, antichrist. spirit wow. which is probably why you find the antichrist in church so often
2: yeah um or the
0: antichrist that, spirit at least yeah it's just we're gonna we're gonna stop focusing on christ and focus on politics and focus on mm-hmm. yeah, yeah you know and and all that stuff in revelation is a it's all spiritual. Antichrist is a spirit. The, yeah. the Beast is a spirit. To me, I did a ten-hour study on the Book of Revelation um, over over the COVID season uh, for a small group of people, and then we just made it available on our website. But uh, when I look at the Book of Revelation, I see it as a handbook of how to walk in victory in every single generation. Yeah. You know, victory over darkness. You know, how, how do you enforce the victory of the cross in every single generation? Because literally every generation could find signs within their generation that would point to their generation as the generation of the last days. So I'm not coming at it from a super futuristic perspective, you know?
2: No, that's good. Oh, and then in the beginning of the letter, I guess you would call it a letter or the vision. um, Mm -hmm. He has instructions to seven churches and just something that popped out to me when I was reading through it a month or two ago. It's almost like it's a letter. Here are seven common problems you might face yeah. when leading a group of people walking this thing out. And so it's almost like a rough guide to It's like a leadership instruction manual. Here are seven right. of the most common problems you might face if you're walking with Christ with people and trying to figure this thing out. I don't yeah. know. This is something that stuck out to me.
0: Most people don't find any problem preaching out of Revelation 1 through 5. Yeah. 1 through 3, maybe. Mm -hmm. Once you get past chapter 5, it starts getting a little crazy. Yeah.
2: For sure, man. Um, So, um, you said something. I was listening to the um, Reckless Grace podcast a couple days ago, and you said something on... It was either the first or second episode. You said something about... Uh, sacred cow barbecue (laughs) and you said i like to cook so you said i'm gonna barbecue some sacred cows. so this is you know more of you telling stories and things like that but just something i was curious and we might have already covered it in the conversation but if you had to pick one sacred cow to barbecue and you could only pick one what what sacred cow are you you putting down on the grill and inviting people over for y'all to enjoy that feast
0: D- distance and separation
2: distance and separation
0: yeah. yeah all right that was the biggest thing that changed everything for me years ago somebody asked me he says what's the most mind-melting verse you've ever read in the bible you're sitting in a little restaurant that i own a little coffee shop that i owned years ago i'm just making small talk and whatever and it was, it was really kind of a, a catalytic question for me. It, it, for him, it was just kind of a throwaway moment just to, you know, just to talk scripture. But it, it literally took me months to answer that question. I mean, I think I gave him something in the moment, but then I yeah. kind of went back to the scripture. And I thought if I was going to settle on one verse that undoes me and I can't wrap my mind around it and kind of feel like I never will, but I, I'm going to spend eternity trying. I came to the conclusion for me, it was John 1420 where jesus says in that day you will know i am in the father and you are in me and i am in you and really it was that last that last part of the equation that last i am in you part that changed everything because i could i could believe that uh, i knew that jesus and the father one. i get that and i i knew that uh, i was in maybe i was in him but to me, it was like a drop of water in the ocean. I sort of assimilated into the collective. And, and and now it's no longer I that lives but Christ. And so my life doesn't matter. But it was that last part, and I am in you, which means I don't disappear in this equation, but the union is still relevant. And as, of course, mutual friends of ours would, were preaching so much at the time, no distance, no separation. Mm-hmm. I remember the first time I I heard that phrase, no distance, no separation. You know, it, it hit my spirit, I would say, so with so much life that it was like taking a bite of something that was like, wow, that was great. I wonder if I take another bite, is it going to be just as good? And it was, and it was, and it was. And so that phrase, no distance, no separation goes through my mind hundreds of times a day. It's it like plays on loop in my head. I, I feel like that four word phrase, no distance, no separation, is the sound and language that is embedded in the deepest part of my blood, my being, because that union aspect of us and, and God, you're one with God in Christ by the power of the Holy spirit. And he did that, that reality changes everything. So now I recognize to me, that's a new covenant. That's just Paul's new covenant reality. All 13 letters that Paul wrote were just enamored with union and, um, And everywhere I go, when I talk to people, the languaging of distance and separation is glaring to me. But if I don't recognize that, then it's real easy to get into arguments with people. You know, oh, you're wrong about this. You're wrong about it. No, that's not it. I recognize where where i was for so long was striving to get closer to a god that had taken up residence within me and i knew that philosophically and you know as a concept but experiencing the reality of that intimacy i had to let myself believe it you know i had to actually come mm-hmm. to the place where i go by faith i i think this is true and uh so that's what i challenge people to do everywhere i go is just to believe you know, repent and believe the gospel is to repent and believe that you're one with God in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he did that. First Corinthians 1.30. By his doing, you are in, in Christ Jesus. Once people come to an awareness of that, it changes everything. I was in a meeting where this guy says, uh, one day he says, I'm in a Bible study. He's actually, he says, I was, I was in a Bible study with your dad. And he was just talking about the goodness of God and what Jesus had done. And he said, and all of the sudden, something clicked. It's like my heart and my mind aligned for the first time with what Christ had accomplished. And he said, before I could even like take a breath, I knew it. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm, wow. I'm in, like I'm in. Yeah." And he goes, I walked away from there and he goes, my brother says to me something different about you. And he goes, I'm saved. And he says, what'd you do? He said, I didn't do anything. I didn't do anything. He was just sitting in a meeting and suddenly believed the gospel. And from that point on, has been confessing Christ and the, the work of Christ. You know, you know, Matt. If you talk about you know, going back, like to the early fathers, first three centuries of Christianity, and you read what they said about Jesus, especially in regards to to his work, uh, his saving grace to save them, even all the way up to the Nicene Creed. You know, uh, people would talk pretty much solely about what Christ had done. Yeah, very little human effort um, before salvation. Tons of human work, sacrificial compassion laid down after or as a result of what Christ had done. Um, so it, it, it always seems to begin with Jesus. But these days, 2,000 years after the cross, if I ask people, how'd you get saved? The answer usually most always begins with the word I. Mm-hmm. I did, I prayed, I, you know, all that. So somewhere in the last 2,000 years, the, the gospel has gone from what Christ did to what we do. Yeah. And that would be the sacred cow I'd love to just barbecue once and for all. There you go. Get back to the work of Christ and resting in the reality of the finished work of the cross. Letting the good news of that intimate communion be so motivating that the grace of that moment of while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us becomes the motivating factor for everything we do in evangelism, missions, and all that stuff. So that's the big sacred cow for me to barbecue. That's no distance, no separation between us and God. We'll come back to the conversation in just a moment.
1: What is the answer to much of the turmoil our nation is facing today? Have you found that the issues that 2020 brought to the surface have challenged your relationships? Perhaps they even destroyed some of your relationships. Join with Bill Vanderbush and co-writer Britt Eaton as they unfold the answer to these questions and more in their book, Reckless Grace. What is this grace that Jesus put on display, and why is it even referred to as reckless? Many readers have found healing on a deep, deep level as they've applied this message of grace to their families, businesses, and marriages. Doors have opened for them in areas they never would have dreamed possible. It's time for the world to heal. It's time for reckless grace, the reckless grace of God to invade and come on in full force and be evident in His people. Reckless Grace is available on Amazon.com or Bill's website, BillVanderbush.com.
2: So our mutual friend, Andre, one thing he yeah. says a lot that I think really encapsulates that whole idea. in like one phrase, he was like, with Christ, it was no longer you sacrificing for God. It was God sacrificing for you.
0: Oh, my oh, goodness. I was thinking um, about thinking about actually having this conversation just yesterday with somebody um, in in an airport uh, where John the Baptist is baptizing and he sees Jesus coming over the hill and it it caught my just attention and I wonder if John knew what he was saying when he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Yeah. Because you think about that, it went against everything that they would have believed as Jews. Behold the Lamb, Lamb is sacrifice. Only mm-hmm. sinners sacrifice. God's not a sinner. Why is God sacrificing a lamb? And if God's sacrificing a lamb, he's not going to sacrifice a person because God doesn't believe in human sacrifice. unless yeah. God is going to be the sacrifice himself that lays down his own life because he, Jesus said, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down on my, on my own. So when John sees Jesus, he's literally saying, everybody look, this is the sacrifice of God himself. Yes. Not that God is offering, but that God is giving him, him God was in Christ, right? So mm-hmm. this is the sacrifice. This is the sacrificial lamb of God himself. And the result of this is that it takes away the sin of the cosmos, the distance and separation of the cosmos. I mean, mm-hmm. that's, it's a radically mind blowing thought. I, I wonder if he, if he was even shocked at the words that spilled out of his mouth. And almost like he just caught this overflow of of heaven's revelation, and mm-hmm. then sound comes out that blows his own mind. Yeah. yeah, and he's
2: it's one of those moments like, what did I just say? Right. Like, what does this even mean?
0: I just looked at you my know? cousin, and I just told everybody that he's God, and that God <laughs> is going to be sacrificing Himself for us. Yeah, which in, is in this in this body right here
2: which is total blasphemy in our, in our culture, the culture that they're living in, like, that's total blasphemy. But we're using the language, the languaging and the patterning of our culture, but we're flipping it on its head and saying like, oh, hey, this stuff we've been doing for 2000 years, um, it's no good. Here's what's about to, here's what's about to go down.
0: I was saying this to to this, this guy the other day. And he says to me, and he's shaking his head like this. He goes, Man, he says, if the blood of a goat could take away the sin of an entire nation for a whole year under an old covenant, what did the blood of the lamb, the sacrifice of the Lamb of God, God Himself, as the sacrificial lamb, do? So, what did that even accomplish? If a, if a goat could, I mean, he's like, come on, <laughs> that's just yeah, that's just crazy. You know, like when a priest and the you know a priest is hanging out in the temple, here comes a sinner carrying a lamb. You know, the sinner's coming to sacrifice this lamb, you know, for his sin. He hands the lamb over to the priest. The priest doesn't inspect the sinner. He inspects the lamb because it's the quality of the lamb that determines the measure of grace released in the moment. It, <laughs> you take that principle and you bring it into the new covenant and you realize if we don't regard the, the power of what Christ accomplished on the cross as having the capacity, the ability and the all-sufficiency to eradicate the sin of the cosmos. You know, what what kind of a gospel are we preaching? It has to end up becoming a gospel of our own works. If we fail to see the finished work, then we have to create our own.
2: Well, and I know kind of in my walk, like i got this revelation or God put me in the situation, circumstances, whatever, and hit me with that revelation, and I experienced it. But it's been like 10 years and I'm still walking through deconstructing religious programming that I had yeah. previously from that. It's almost like you have a, like a victim who has like a traumatic wound and they pack it full of gauze. Yeah. They say stuff the wound full of gauze. Go- it's like for 10 years, God's just been pulling that gauze out. Yeah. That's what it kind of, what it feels like for me, yeah. at least. It's like, you know, this intellectually, you've experienced it but there's still all these little religious things you want to attach and you have to let me breathe on those you have to let me talk to you and tell you 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 are good enough you don't have to be so harsh on yourself and then with me it's like when i'm when i'm harsh harsh and self-critical and i hold myself to some weird standard that I'm not even sure whose standard it is. I start to hold other people to that standard. Yeah. And yeah. then I think in a sense, we do that in a religious way, you know, with our own right. works.
0: Yeah. When we gauge but, our spirituality or our intimacy with God, when we gauge our relationship with God or all that by by our own works, then we will use that standard of our own works to judge the uh, the, the relationship that other people have with God. You yeah. Know, I Life Atlin says so beautifully. He says, you know, I've been on a lot of ships in my life. You know, um, leadership, discipleship, mentorship. He says they've they've all sunk at some point. He goes, the one ship that stays afloat no matter what is sunship.
2: Nice. And, uh,
0: yeah. Uh sunship.
2: It's good. It's good to be on the sunship. Uh, no, um,
0: I know. I, I live there. I like that. Yeah,
2: it's a good one. <laughs> um but getting getting kind of it seems like a lot of our conversation has been um kind of thematically centered around identity, mm-hmm. which you're um I would consider you like you're like the babe Ruth. You're like the Michael Jordan of teaching on identity. I think. <laughs> wow. Right.
0: <laughs> right. That is awesome. Thank yeah. you. Thank you.
2: But so yeah. it's it's a great it's a good it's a good times. Um Cause we've been talking about identity so much with like, to me, you're the OG of identity.
0: I saw a meme the other day I had a picture of Scotty Pippen and Michael Jordan sitting <laughs> together and Scotty says, you know, they say LeBron set a record for the most games or the most points scored in, in a game seven. And uh Jordan turns to Pippen and goes, what's game seven.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I crazy. Oh, that's a good time. I've watched the last dance, I think five times. amazing Um, yeah it's it's you know it's just good there's so Mm. many nuggets and you know Mm. that's that's part of what i do in my day job so there's (laughs) one i love it just for the nostalgia quality but it's just like there's all these little bitty lessons from a coaching perspective from a leadership perspective just from a how you approach things perspective that are just all woven within there it's but it's great yeah um Uh, But uh, I guess last thing, we had a few more minutes before I run out of recording time. Um, Kind of centered around identity. Let's riff on this a little bit. So how does how we see ourselves affect how we see God?
0: Well, if I can see him clearly, then I can define, I can see myself defined in how I see him. If I can behold him and see who he is. Then I realized made in his image and likeness, it is his divine nature that I'm a partaker of that defines who I am, which forces me to break the lies and labels off my life that I believed about myself, which is just letting go. It's not a striving. It's a surrender. It's just letting go of all the lies and the labels I believed. God told Jeremiah, he said, I knew you before I formed you, which means you could be known before you knew you could be known. So then I asked the question, what did he know? Mm -hmm. Because what he knew, what he has always known is who I really am. And so as far as I can see, I have one assignment in this life, and that is to find out what God believes about me and then and then agree with that. Wow. I believe some amazing things, I think, about all of us. I mean, as David said in Psalm 139, you know, how precious are your thoughts to me, O God, and how vast is the sum of them. If I were to count them, they would outnumber the sand. And um, one one day, just living here in Florida, you know, because this whole, this whole state is just a giant sandbar, I went out and just took a <laughs> pinch of sand. I put it here on my dining room table. And I started just saying, how many how many grains of sand are in one pinch, right? And so it took like the prong of a fork. And I'm like, just like counting these things out. And I got to 200. I mean, this is how bored I was on that day. I got to 200 and I barely made a dent in that pinch of sand. And, and I suddenly had this, I just put the fork down and just sat there for a second. I had this moment where I felt the Holy Spirit say to me, you know, let's not even deal with this pinch of sand sand, if you could just believe 10 grains of sand worth what I believe about you, it would change the way you see yourself and everybody else around you. And um, I said, that's it. Not even the state of Florida, not the Sahara Desert worth. Just give me 10 grains of sand, break off 10 lies and replace them with 10 truths of what God believes about me. So, you know, one of them is is the reality that if an eternal God thought you up in his heart and his mind before you ever had the chance to get around to impressing him or disappointing him. And that means he made up his mind about us and he's not waiting, watch our behavior to see how he's going to feel about us. You know, that leads into another one. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. The Bible says um, angels, demons, principalities, powers, life, death, things, present things to come, height, depth, any created thing. He says, that's kind of the, the, the final straw in the whole deal. No created thing can separate you from the love of God. Well, you're created. And so is hell. So if no created thing can separate you from the love of God, I don't know what we do with that. Yeah. Um, The only thing can separate you from the love of God would be God himself. So that comes all the way full circle back to the question, who do you say that I am? Who do we believe He is? wow. Moses goes to the mountain one day to talk to God and he says, show me your glory. And God says, I'm going to make all my goodness to pass before you. So the glory of God is the goodness of God on display. And then God goes on further to define that goodness where he says, means I'm going to have mercy on who I'm going to have mercy. I'll be gracious to who I'll be gracious to. In other words, I can be as kind as I want to be. Nobody else defines how much love I can give. Nobody else gets to define for me how much kindness I release over this world. I'll forgive whoever I want to forgive. I'll give grace to whoever I want to give it to. And so when Jesus says in John 20, 23, he breathes on the disciples, says, receive the Holy Spirit, and then says, whoever sins you forgive, they're forgiven. That, yeah. that was the whole thing of the, the book, Reckless Grace, is I think it's Jesus saying, all right, now now here's the test. Why don't you guys go forgive people like I do?
2: Yeah, give
0: well. grace, Go give grace <laughs> away the way you think I do. You know, as the Father sent me, I send you. As he is, so are we in this world. You go give grace away just like I do. And the way you give grace will demonstrate who you think I am. And so wow. uh, that's why That's why I lost all my judgment, Matt. That's why I lost all of my sense of judgment, condemn, condemnation for any person. It's like Peter in Acts chapter 10 and 11, when Peter comes to Cornelius's house and he says, uh, God has shown me that I am to call no man unholy or unclean. Okay. Well, wow. What options does that leave me? That means I got to look at people and go holy and clean. Mm-hmm. I am literally forbidden from calling anybody unholy or unclean and that means i can't i can't look at what they do and judge them based upon what they do well if i can't do that it, then I, I i don't think god does either yeah. is, he says to us love your enemies w- what do we think he's doing with his <laughs> us of something of us that he's not willing to do mm-hmm. himself so it all points to to me this unfolding reality that the gospel is consistently better news than we ever thought yeah uh, so my i've kind of gone through a little deconstruction as well but Mm. every decon moment of deconstruction has been replaced by a reconstruction of a greater goodness that i that i never knew possible and it it just makes me happier and happier all the time so i feel like i'm just getting gladder and gladder day by day
2: like i said i've got about three pages of notes now um which, which i love so i'm gonna have to go back and play this because there's just so I'm many nuggets recorded there. This.
0: i want to go back and and, and yeah. re- listen to this too
2: yeah i am too and what i like too is i got a lot of young men listening who've kind of they're, they're dipping their toes into the edge of the finished work pool so mm-hmm. to speak and so now you're you're they're gonna listen to this and they're gonna hear it and you're just like picking them up and throwing them throwing them into the deep end here you go
0: mm yeah give one last thought since you just mentioned that me, you got some people listening to this that know, might have a might have a you know dipping their toes in the finished work pool a lot of the fruit of the finished work message that i've watched and even been a part of preaching has been sort of a complacent apathy as people kind of get off the hamster mm-hmm. wheel of religious effort some time ago i felt like the lord said the finished work of the cross became the access point into a new covenant reality where the greater works are that i told you were possible in other words Grace suddenly became both a point of rest and a motivator at the same time. I was suddenly motivated on a whole other level, whereas I used to preach a gospel that was based upon like, you know, you got to make just one decision where you're going to spend eternity. It was a destination-based message. I feel like the finished work of the cross has now given me a whole exploding, unending freshness to evangelism, and that is I want people to know what God did, what Christ did, And I don't want people to walk in blindness to who they are for a day in their life. We're living invitations to be ambassadors of Christ, for people to awaken to their reconciled union with God and in that reconciled union find a place of rest for their soul and a place of grace to move and motivate their spirit to go out and pursue the things that perhaps weren't previously available. So all that to say, I feel like I evangelize now more than ever, pray for the sick now more than ever. I'm doing more than I ever did before, but it's not a doing that's based on uh, me being the fuel for my own life to try to impress God. It's simply lived out of gratitude. So now I have this supernatural energy and strength that I'm thinking, my goodness, where'd this come from? I realize now he's the fuel. On the other side of the cross, there's this finished work reality where, you know, my sharing the gospel with people isn't a duty, it's an absolute pleasure. It's 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 like breathing, it's the identity that, that we carry. So you know just you know never to allow the finished work to draw us into a place of well it's all done so there's nothing left to do yeah because it's all done there's things i can now do that i could not do before it it qualifies me to do the things i did not think i was worthy to do now i am made worthy righteous pure holy because of what christ did that qualifies me to do what i never could do before so um so i see more we see more miracles happen we see more uh, people come to Christ. So anybody who's listening to this, like, just let the finished work of the cross just open the door to the kingdom. Well, thanks for listening in on the conversation between Matt and I. And I'm so grateful to Matt for allowing me to be on his podcast and I welcome him anytime on to mine as well. You know, God is asking the question of us, who do you say that I am? He's not looking for us to define his identity. God's fully secure in his awareness of self, but defining God's nature through his word, reveals us. And you know, that's what the world is dealing with right now is an identity crisis. God dealt with the sin issue in Christ on the cross, but we have an identity problem because we don't see him clearly. So we have a hard time knowing ourselves. We've got to see the origin of our image and likeness clearly to determine our identity. Otherwise, we end up with a monster God in a world of sinners. And that definitely impacts our message. Now, On a personal level, if your gender, race, religious affiliation, job, social status, culture, moral performance, or politics is a foundational source of your identity, then the first time somebody threatens those things, then you'll be challenged with offense. See, people who love you will protect you, even if you hurt them. And people who merely accept you will destroy you if you cause them any pain at all. People tend to gravitate toward those communities that offer them acceptance. and We're guilty, I think, of challenging people to a standard of laying down your life for Christ and then setting expectations in place to define what that means to our culture, but offering no clear path of redemption if they happen to violate it. That's why reckless grace is so important. Without a path of redemption, then people will by default gravitate toward whatever group offers the most unconditional acceptance. And many times it means we push them or cancel them into an unhealthy place or an unhealthy community. So, what is a healthy community? Church? Christian circles? Well, in Christian circles, we've made belonging a thing of tremendous value. And the price for belonging is believing. If we believe correctly, and we achieved the reward of belonging. When it came to Jesus though, he brought people in and declared that they belonged before they even knew what to believe. Thanks to Brad McCoy for unveiling that beautiful truth in his book, Culture of the Few. See, Jesus told the disciples before they were even believers that their names were written in heaven. Now that's a theological difficulty for much of the church love covers a multitude of sins but acceptance requires that you remain sinless according to the code of the culture that accepts you if acceptance is based upon law and not upon love then we'll end up comparing ourselves to everybody around us to see how we measure up when love is at the core of a community we become a consistent living invitation into a transforming relationship with christ who is conforming us into his image our acceptance isn't based upon the speed of their transformation. There were rare times when the Apostle Paul spoke of distancing yourself from someone in the community who is intent on doing harm. So there's a place for love to create a boundary that protects everybody. But Paul made clear that the goal was not just the protection of the community but the restoration of the fallen. Now every one of us is just one encounter with God away from a complete transformation. Colossians chapter 2 verses 9 and 10 says that the fullness of the Godhead was dwelling in Christ and in him you have been, past tense, made complete. So your completeness is a past tense eternal reality from heaven's perspective. And when you see from the perspective of being seated in Christ, as the Bible says, in heavenly places, then you will behold the truth of your completeness and what we behold, we become. If all you can see is your sinful unworthiness, then you'll never believe what God believes about you. But all it takes is one encounter from the Lord that can unveil a revelation of grace and freedom. Realizing that forgiveness frees the forgiver. And when we realize that, we're more likely to extend grace, maybe even recklessly. And as we put His grace on display to this world, we are demonstrating our answer to His question, who do you say that I am? Thanks for listening to the podcast today. See you next time.
1: Thank you so much for your love and support. You make it possible for Bill and Tracy to keep the message of Jesus Christ going around the world. We're thankful for every open door, not only in the U.S., but in places like Ireland, England, Scotland, France, Germany, and more. We are always encouraged as we find fires of God burning each place we go. We value your prayers more than you can even imagine. If you feel compelled to give, you can find a link at billvanderbush.com. We would love to hear from you. Feel free to write to us at Faith Mountain Ministries, P.O. Box 595, Marshall, Minnesota 56258.